Hey, yo, what up? DJ Dorsey here. Uh, thank y'all so much for tuning in. Um, I just wanted to do a quick little intro and say thank y'all so much for tuning in last week. We had Michael and Debbie Carter on the podcast for part one of Days of Our Lives. Um, this is about to be part two. So if you have not listened to part one yet, I would advise you to go back and listen to part one before you jump into part two. Um this is me and Maya sitting down with a couple that we would consider to be our mentor. Like they have been inducted to be our mentors. Um, and we, we just want to soak in wisdom and knowledge and from a couple that's older than us and a little bit wiser than us, a lot bit wiser than us. So we hope that you all find this, um, good and informational and something that feeds your soul, feed, feeds your daily life, especially for you married couples or people that's considering being married. Uh, these are some real life stories and things of that sort. So stick around. We're about to jump right into it. And uh, thank you all so much for listening to the Dorsey Den podcast. Here we go. Yeah, we 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 look at a lot of older baby boomer. And when we see people 56 years, it's like, whoa, you know, and kind of to merge to something else. But kind of on that, we had a conversation the other day about the difference in generations. And um, I think I think you were saying something about you see like this gap between the baby boomers and kind of like even our generation. But what I want to ask you all, um, you I don't know how many more years you have to work before you get to retirement, but. At what point did you start thinking about retirement and saying, I want to retire at this age. I want to retire with this much money. Uh, cause, and the reason why I ask is I worry about my generation and down because I don't think that's really like a thing that's kind of worried about. For instance, we live in a time now where companies like I'm used to hearing my parents, the baby boomer say they work a job for 30 years. They retire. It's kind of not the case anymore. You know, the, one of the fears is social security is not going to be around. Like by the time I get to that age, um, a lot of people are, especially like the, the millennials, they're jumping jobs. They'll work a job for a year. They move somewhere else. Where in my mind, back in, back, back in my day, I was always told keep a job, you know, so they can, if you go for another job, they see some longevity. Yeah. yeah. Where versus you look at a resume now it might be, well, you was here for six months. You was here for two years. You was here for three. Like, I don't think that applies anymore. So I'm just, so my bottom line question is, what are your thoughts about what do you see going on today? And um, planning, just planning so for I'll the So I'll start future. yourself because Debbie has a long way to go before she's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I actually retired in 2015. Okay. 33 years in, in uh, PERS and STRS. What's that? Uh, um, it's uh, public employees uh, retirement system and oh, okay. teachers mm-hmm. uh, uh, retirement system. Mm-hmm. And I had a wonderful me- I think when you talk about saving and planning, you need a mentor. Mm-hmm. You need someone. And I'm not necessarily talking about it can be a, a financial planner, but someone who understands this. And I had a wonderful mentor mm-hmm. and he tried to school me on everything that I needed to know about preparing for retirement. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to retire at 55. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm, I'm working again. But that that advice is really, really important. And I think that 
no matter what, how many jobs or what you do jumping around as far as jobs are concerned, mm-hmm. you need to save for retirement mm-hmm. and resist the urge. You know, let's say you work one place and you've paid into a system, mm-hmm. taking that money and buying a car or mm-hmm. buying it's saving because at some point in time you hope that that you're going to be blessed mm-hmm. to be able to retire. So mm-hmm. it's it's having that nest egg so that you uh, can have uh, a, a lifestyle that is uh, is 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 comfortable for yeah. you. And and that's tough for some, but if you are in a position to be able to do that. Then it's it's being trying to be mindful. We try to talk to our children about that. Debbie's had you know a, a lot of conversations uh, with our kids about hey, are you you know what's your retirement plan? What are you doing? What are you saving? It's mm-hmm. really really important. It's tough though at 22, 23, 25 to see thirty years down the road. Yeah, and that is what you you got to see. My mother used to say, you know, grew up in in the segregated South, was a domestic. She would say, and 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 hopefully people out there aren't for this is, but I think if you can grasp this picture, she would say, white folks plan to live, mm-hmm. black folks plan to die. And she said there is a psychological difference in that. And and some of it goes into saving and preparing. And she said the people she went this is you know coming from being a domestic, mm-hmm. they're planning for this generational. So I know I'm not going to be here forever, mm-hmm. but I need to prepare to retire and prepare to have something for my children. But because of circumstances, history plays a part in that. Mm-hmm. So we have oftentimes never thought that that was an option for us. Mm-hmm. So that's why if she she wasn't being critical. She understood the historical ramifications why we did that Mm -hmm. but she was sharing with us is you have an opportunity we've worked hard so you don't have to do even like we did Mm -hmm. as far as so you need to plan not only to live because you know you hope that you're going to be blessed to live past 30 Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and and so plan to Mm -hmm. take care of those things interesting okay so this brings me to the um racial wealth gap Mm -hmm. that we talked about Mm. so with that i tried to explain that to terrence but can you go into like even with college educated and you know this from a career tech even being an african-american person and you are college educated there's still a wealth gap well because it's related to general generational wealth Mm -hmm. we have been excluded from this system for so many years and just now have recently been a part of it. You've got families who have been college educated, whose families have had business, who all these things that we were locked out of Mm -hmm. uh, and not been able to do. So I'll give you a personal example. So my father fought in World War II. So black GIs coming home from World War II, you get, you know, people talk about the GI Bill, and that's part of the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. But a piece of that GI Bill, people tend to either not talk about, not know, or kind of forget to mention, black GIs could not get home loans to live in what we would call Levitt towns or the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
which were low-interest loans where you could buy a house, you buy the $5,000 house in the suburb. Now, you think about generational wealth. So with was, redlining and everything, we had a $5,000 house in the suburb? Yeah, well, the, the know, 1950s. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Eisenhower sets this up, and we there were places we simply couldn't live. Mm-hmm. And we typically had to live in places no one wanted to live in. I mean, it was, it was exclusively of mm-hmm. color, mm-hmm. recent immigrants, things like that. So if you bought, let's say you're a white GI, you buy in the suburbs, you buy in a Levittown, $5,000 in 1950. Mm-hmm. You sell the house in 1980, let's say, or 1990 for $300,000, $400,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a friend who, McLean, Georgia, uh, McLean, Virginia, is one of the wealthiest uh, areas in the country. Now, McLean in the 50s, was not that. But let's say you had a house in McLean in 1950 and sold it in 1990, mm-hmm. and it's worth a half million, $800,000. Mm-hmm. Think of the wealth mm-hmm. that you have generated. Well, people of color have not had that opportunity. And it goes beyond that, but mm-hmm. that's just an example, a uh, personal example. There were places my father knew he couldn't buy. So he was limited where he could buy, where he could live, and, and just a lot of those things impact. So part of that racial, and what I love is these were all government things. Mm-hmm. This wasn't something that one individual, Mm-mm. you know, loans and who Systematic. they go to. Systematic. What the government right. said, you know, where you could live and, and what you could buy. All these things that were intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the projects, you know, in cities. Mm-hmm. That was a government program. Mm-hmm that has just destroyed families and people. And they called it the projects because it was a It was project. a project. Yeah, it was, a, yeah, it was, a, yes. it was an experiment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was an experiment. We're going to see uh, what, what this looks like and see if it works. I think mm-hmm. Michael brings up a good point, too. I know I, I, I have friends. I know people who are fifth or sixth generation middle class white people. Mm-hmm. You know, we are if we're lucky, we're second generation, maybe third. You know what I'm saying? But their wealth has gone back that long. You think about the advantage mm-hmm. that that provided to them. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were still sharecropping. Mm-hmm. You know, they were already three or four generations out mm-hmm. in middle class. And so just to start where we are, you know, mm-hmm. trying to catch up. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never going to happen. So that wealth gap is real mm-hmm. for us simply because we were black. And then you think know? about, too, the other side, and, and that's a good point. The other side of that is who you have the opportunity to rub elbows with. Mm-hmm. So if you have been rubbing elbows with wealthy people for four and five generations, generations. our folks are just meeting Mm-hmm. If they have the opportunity. So it's, you know, someone who you know went to school somebody. with in the 1920s and 30s where we weren't even, unless we oh, went wow. to an HBCU, mm-hmm. that wasn't even available to us. Mm-hmm. And think of who was in HBCUs. You're talking about, for the most part, other working class or poor mm-hmm. black people. It wasn't well at Harvard. It, Everybody has some money. Right. Mm -hmm. And Yale. And so they're creating these systems to benefit themselves and their friends. Mm -hmm. So, and we were excluded from that. Mm -hmm. And we're just learning these things. And you couldn't go, you know, can you imagine not being able to go to a bank and get a loan? That is something. 
something I learned. Color my, your skin. Well, my my economics professor told me as a freshman, he said, you do realize that most people who claim to be wealthy don't have any money. They just have the ability to borrow. That's right. See, the ability to borrow, you don't have to have a dime if people believe that you you have some money Mm -hmm. and you can pay it back if you're successful. And the other thing he told me, and, and you know, Balwer Singh uh, was economics professor. He said, people, uh, filing for bankruptcy isn't something that poor people invented and did. This is something wealthy people file for bankruptcy, walk away from loans and things like that. That that's they've not been a doing luxury, it. right? Mm-hmm. That's not a luxury with no that penalty. Most people have. And yeah. it's it's this these things that we have not been a part of, have no knowledge of, that have impacted us and will continue to impact us. And then and then the whole thing too is like you know, I understand you know the importance of my parents being educated. And the opportunities that they gave us, you know, um, but trying to get people feel like, okay, well, now you're you're a part of this whole suburban culture, whatever, like you don't understand um, the struggle. Well, of course, I understand the struggle, you know, not all of my my mother, she was um, educated through. Uh, community college my dad went to Howard he went to Ohio State whatever but even in that I feel like we still have a responsibility because without education for real and having those knowing those people don't know and having those opportunities we really still as African-American people are so far behind you know so it's like regardless whether you are in the suburbs regardless of where you are you still have so much work to do you know, in and, order to even try to get a slice of the pie, piece and, of it. And we crumb. have to we have to avoid the inclination to drink the poison. We get this idea that there's a certain degree of blackness mm-hmm. and that is false. If you are of color in, in America, you've suffered discrimination. I don't care where you live. That's right. I think you know, D. L. Hughley was a really powerful interview and I thought about this and it was my reality. He said there's not a you know, you talk about African American men, there's not an African American man in this country who hasn't had a negative encounter with the police. So this we drink this poison even among ourselves that, well, this person isn't black enough or this that's that's false. Mm-hmm. We have we have drank that poison. It's just simply not true. And What's we, the responsibility, though? It's like people, we know this. We we know about Trayvon Martin. We know about all the stuff that's in the media. And it's like I feel like I have a responsibility to not only educate my children but also try to do something. That's what we try to do in education is try to teach one, reach one. But it's like outside of the people who are not in interacting with kids, what's the responsibility? Like what do we do? Like what can people do? What, pe- what should people do? do period i mean we all know about even like black wall street you know we know about having our own having our own communities and everything but i think now this generation is so like hey that was then we ain't got to worry about it but we do you know you walking down the street and minding your business and your brother your cousin whomever then got gunned down for no apparent reason but because they haven't felt like they had a racial encounter Mm -hmm. It's like, that ain't got nothing to do with me. So trying to get people to understand that we all have a responsibility and should have a sense of responsibility to do something. If it's nothing but educate yourself. So it's like, what do you, how do you encourage this generation, the 20 somethings, you know, that feel like that's, 
Dr. King, that's, you know, that's old school people. That don't have nothing to do with me. Like, it's isolated. Like, those events happen because he walked on the wrong street, but they don't have anything to do with me. You know what I'm saying? I like, think we're living in a perfect time to address that. Look at the time we're in now. Um, racial violence is higher than it's been in decades. Mm -hmm. There are more white nationalists, white supremacist groups in the country than we've had in many years. This isn't hasn't disappeared. Right. It has been underground and now we live in a in a society where people are comfortable bringing that out and our children need to be aware of that. They need to understand that uh this is is a different ball game and you may we have provided comfort for them mm -hmm. and it's been it's oftentimes Debbie can expand on this because she's talked about quite a bit. It's made them a little naive as far as if you live in the suburbs and you're black and you have children, children oftentimes have been fooled. Mm -hmm. And they think that, hey, I've got it. Well. Or I don't see color or we don't have <laughs> color issues or I accept everybody. You know, but you, you're still perceived in a way, even though that my kids are in a suburban school okay. district, they are still, even though you may not feel it, because you like I'm accepted, but you're still perceived a certain way. Right. So trying to equip our kids, not with the like with my son, he is little Jesse Jackson. <laughs> I promise you, he's more conscious mm -hmm. than I don't know where he got it from, but I he's aware. No clue. Like yeah. he knows he's a black male. He knows he's a black male. He understands bias real well, mm -hmm. and it's not something that we are just drilling and killing with him. But he knows it, and so just trying to empower him to embrace. Yes, you are a black male. Have honor with that. But also, when things don't feel right, it's okay to recognize they don't feel right. That's right. You know. So trying to still educate my my son and my daughter to know this is your history. This is what could happen. Be prepared if it does happen, but don't hate everybody. And, and you know? I, I think it's making them aware. And I'll, I'll, Debbie does an exercise with our kids I'll let her talk about. But before I do that, it's showing them, I think, little slices, something I tend to talk about right now. So this is 2019. Mm -hmm. There are still 100 schools or school districts in America that are named after Confederate icons. This is 2019. Mm -hmm. And so think about that. So there is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a Jefferson Davis High School in Montgomery, Alabama, yes. which is a predominantly black school. Can you imagine in Germany a Jewish child going to Goebbels High School? Mm -hmm. They would not allow that. So I think it's sharing with a, the, this isn't old Can history. you share who Jefferson Davis is? Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. The Confederacy, the whole goal was to keep black people enslaved mm -hmm. and went to war, committed treason against this country to go to war to <laughs> keep slavery mm -hmm. in the southern states. And he was the president of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And that's a high school mm -hmm. in the United States. Named after that's him. unconscionable. Mm -hmm. But we don't even think about that. And so it's, it's predominantly it's, black. It's it, is predom it is now. It is now. Mm -hmm. And his statue is still up, isn't it? His, If you go through on 65, Route 65 in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a Confederate park mm. where uh, William Bedford Forrest 
who is one of the founders of the KKK and who's a Confederate general, his statue's there. Mm -hmm. Now, the statue was built by a white nationalist who was the attorney for James Earl Ray who assassinated Dr. King. Mm -hmm. And that is when I drive, that's not 60 years ago, mm -hmm. that's 2019. So I think it's this, the opportunities that we have to share with our children. This, and, and it's, it's not as prevalent, and yeah, we've had a black president, but why do you think this pushback to the country's change, you know, is, is mm -hmm. so uh, severe? It's because there's this fear, mm -hmm. and letting our children know that this is real. Uh, I mentioned, you know, Debbie has done an exercise with our kids. It's just a small thing about when did you discover? Why don't you tell them? Uh, well, I wanted to mention something else uh, with my. I think that we as parents and as a black community, we are obligated to teach our children whether they want to hear it or not. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, it's almost like religion or spirituality for me. It's not, it's about a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. At some point, you need to know this. Mm -hmm. You may not want to hear it now. You may not think it's important, but this is a part of who you are, and you need to know. So as a result, one of the things that we do, um, you know, we took our kids to museums. We talked to them. Michael talked to them a lot about the uh, the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and what that meant, even in sports. Make it relevant. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Talk to them about you know, black sports figures, if that's who their role models are, or talk to them about who important people are in their communities. But I think we're obligated as parents and concerned, you know, stakeholders to teach our children the history, even if they don't want to learn. Because what happens is um, there's a book uh, called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in, in the, the Cafeteria? cafeteria. Yeah. Have you read that? I'm, I just ordered it. Okay, yeah. so in the book, like Dr. Beverly Tatum, talks about yes. the black experience. Mm -hmm. She says that every African-American in the United States has a black experience. And for some kids, that can be a good thing, a positive thing. But for most kids, that's a, 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 a disappointment. Or, uh, it's a negative thing that they are called nigger mm -hmm. for the first time or they are treated different for whatever mm -hmm. reason for the first time when they realize that they're black and how that impacts our kids. So as an educator, if your children don't know their history and what it means to be black and what happened to Trayvon when somebody rolls up on him in the street, then that's a devastating, potentially mm -hmm. devastating um, event for him mm -hmm. when he finds out that he's black mm -hmm. for the first time. Mm -hmm. But if we've taught them those lessons all along, mm -hmm. you know what they're I'm saying? They're prepared for it. They're prepared yeah. for it. They're prepared for it. You know, one of my greatest disappointments or letdowns as a parent, and I only found this out recently, that when my, my, my son Trey was called nigger for the first time, he didn't come home and share that with me. Mm -hmm. That said to me, I didn't prepare him well. Mm -hmm. Maya. He wasn't prepared to be black. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when I found about out about that later, he said to me, I didn't want to upset you. You know, that wasn't a conversation that I was ready to have with you. I didn't. He felt like he was. The, that was the only time that that never happened to other people. Mm -hmm. But if I had done my job better with him, which is why I'm saying tell him. Mm -hmm. Tell them now mm -hmm. that it can happen to you. That's right. You know what I'm saying? So then when he comes home and says, Dad, somebody called me a nigga today, then that 
conversation. You can have that then, mm-hmm. but he's already got something. He knew. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He knew that that was not the first time, that he wasn't the only one, and that he needed to be prepared to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say to yeah, that. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Even with that, I'm like, um, outside of the racial part, it's like even having a daughter. Yes. And I'm like, we had a situation, I'm like, you don't talk to a boy. If he wants to date you, he comes to you. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> we living in this weird town now where I'm seeing women proposing to men, but that's beside the point. But it's kind of like, you know, just making them aware. That's right. Um, and even with us living where we live, my kids are probably, you know, the, one of the one few. One of the very few. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the very yeah. few black kids. And I'm like, look, yep. you're going to experience this. Yep. You know, uh, we got nigger. And in a hip hop way, we got nigger. Mm-hmm. Either way, either way, it ain't, it ain't cool. Right. It ain't cool. That's right. Right. Um, yeah. You know, just just preparing them because it's it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's going and I to think happen. Preparing them too. You know, it's like talking to kids about sex. You know, if you wait until your daughter's pregnant, it's mm. too late. It's too right. You know what I'm saying? But she if didn't you, have if sex. you've encouraged her all along right. that this is natural, this is normal, this is something we need to talk about, you come to me mm-hmm. when you have questions. You don't go to you know, your little 17-year-old friend. That don't know what, nothing. You come to me. Right. And then we don't get excited about it. You know, they want to know something. And you're like, okay, let me take a breath. It's nasty. Right. He's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, but you, go you talk to your mama. <laughs> and you say, okay, right. this, mm-hmm. is, this is, you know, this is something we can. T- and then they know that when it happens on the bus at school that somebody gets, you know, uh, call the name or somebody mm-hmm. says something, then they think you know. You, you know, know what's my funny? Dad's the one that can answer. This. That's right. You know what's, my dad. what's right. funny about that? You said on the bus. It made me think about. Tell me this. Oh Lord, it, it's it's kind of funny, but I don't know. The way I grew up, we had what we call cracking, busting jokes on each other. Where you from? It's capping, capping. Uh, but we call it cracking around. Yeah. So. I'd be kind of like frustrated with my kids. They'd be like, daddy, such and such said this about me. And I'm like, well, what did you say back? Cause I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think be- there's a fine line between acknowledging bullying and building resist resilience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough, you know, that that's tough. It Cause is, we huh? were talking about my, my high school. I tell Devin, my high school. Oh, it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, and you, you, you know, I, I'm sure there were people who just kind of receded. So you did receded, mm-hmm. you were quiet, or you developed some skills mm-hmm. to come back. Is that healthy? I don't know that it is, but I think something that Debbie and I talk about is I, I think that if you're too protective of everything that this whole resilience. Now, there's a line that you can cross, mm-hmm. but some things are just kids being kids. Being kids. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's it what's happened to it's what happens to boys on the playground in elementary school. Are we penalizing them for being boys or penalizing them for unacceptable behavior? Mm-hmm. And we've got to figure that out. That's true. And the same way with kids playing and, and messing same around. Stuff, yeah. And I think sometimes we live in a society where parents intervene on everything. Right. Everything. You you don't experience, you know, when you're playing outside. My pa- I never saw my parents mm-hmm. outside. In a, you, know, you just had to you, be home at a certain time. You knew to check well, in. Well, street lights. <laughs> street lights. Right. You know, the thing I talk about even in sports and, and that 
playing outside with your with your peers, you see leadership develops. Uh, problem solving. Can you, I mean, you're arguing about who was out, who was who was safe, mm-hmm. who caught the ball. You got to figure that out. And a parent, you can't depend on an adult to come in. Mm-hmm. And that's how leadership and 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 problem solving skills develop. And I think in so many instances, we take these opportunities from our Away kids because we always want to fix. You know, the, our generation, we're we fixing everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not letting a coach. I, I remember when I was in, uh, in in junior high school, I thought I should have been playing. So it was junior high system, seventh, eighth, ninth. Mm-hmm. So I was in eighth grade. I thought I should have been dressing varsity, which is the ninth graders. Mm-hmm. But I was playing with the eighth grade team. It should have been happy. So I go home complaining about my coach. My father says, uh, you don't expect me to talk to him, do you? <laughs> he said, you play basketball, I don't. But this right. generation does. And they parents said, have intervened and, yeah, so much. Done. And my father said, "You, if you disagree with him, you go talk to him. Maybe. He'll respect you as a man, even if he doesn't do what you want him to do. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, we're calling, coach, how dare you? Or we sign a petition, let's get rid of this guy because he's not playing. All these things we do it's called that cancel culture now that doesn't yeah. allow children to develop. Now I'm sure there are people who disagree with me, but that's that's my personal no, feel. I, and that's how totally we've kind of raised, raised our children. I, I coached basketball for yeah. 20 years. Mm-hmm. When my boys went plants, I didn't say a word to a coach, even when I disagreed. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of times I disagreed with how they were treated, what happened, but that's for them to deal with because they're going to have a boss who's a jerk. Mm -hmm. They're going to have things that don't work out on the job, and they've got to figure out how to do that. And at 30, I'm not going, well, I hope I'm not going to their job and saying, uh, you need to treat my child right. There you go. Mm -hmm. So if they got to learn that, when do you learn that? Yeah. Right. So if that doesn't happen and you experience that when you're 25 or the went, you know, what are you going to do? Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's called productive struggle, is what I believe. I I feel like you have to give your kids a little bit of struggle. That's productive. I mean, just not throw them out there to the woods, but figure it out. Problem solve. How you going to. Support them. Yeah, I'm going to help you, but figure that out. So even with my daughter transitioning to middle school, she's like, that's too many classes. and blah, blah. You got to open your mouth. You got to go tell the teacher, I really don't understand. And if you are embarrassed to say it in front of your classmates, you got to learn how to pull that teacher to the side and say, hey, I think I need a little extra help. Can I come in at lunchtime? Can I come after school? But trying to give her that language, don't just sit there and just – Struggle, yeah. go and ask for Speak help. Up. Speak and, up. But and there this, are some things this generation that are too. Now, if you talk about academic, right or wrong, then we're gonna see about you. If it's right, a I'm a right, but you, you know, gotta do your but, part too. But on your end, if you're not, you sleeping in class and not doing right, uh, you know, <laughs> don't call and me. And we were never the parents. <laughs> we were never the parents that right. my kid. Was all there were sometimes they say something about my kid. I said, I know, yeah, you I right. know because I know he them, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right, yeah, you're right. right. Well, mm-hmm. how can we figure this out, right? Because you know, you take care of the school, I'm gonna take care of when we get home. So, but mm-hmm. but when the child mm-hmm. is always then they're really they're in a great position for manipulating everybody, absolutely. And so, I'm Maxine Carter's rule was, and she I went to a school where it's 40 black kids out of 750. And she knew I was going to experience racism. Mm-hmm. She said, look, I got an hourly job. Mm-hmm. If I got to come to school to see about you, and miss some money. grades or behavior, 
you got a special behind whooping coming because <laughs> I'm losing money. Right. So even though I experience, so I'm going to have certain behaviors special. to make sure mm-hmm. that I'm doing what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And that was really important. I knew that I couldn't just come and make stuff. I mean, make stuff up and and state this problem because my mother. This is what I need you to do. Right. And you have. Sometimes we give up our power mm-hmm. because we think that we're power. Now you got a lot of power, mm-hmm. and you're gonna experience racism issues, bad teachers, foolishness. But do what you can, and then we'll intercede on the things that we know are unjust. Mm-hmm. But don't have me coming up here where you're interceding on everything, mm-hmm. and then it's it's a problem. It's going to be a problem for your child. And I, I think agree. too, we circle back um, just for a second. Maya was saying how you're growing. You know, mm-hmm. you're changing from the person you were at 25 and 40. You think about the changes that your daughter is going through from elementary oh, school Oh, yeah, it's a transition. School. Oh, yeah. But even as parents, we transition, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we? we go from becoming um, parents in the traditional sense to becoming more like coaches. Coaches, that's what I'm saying. Or facilitators. Mm-hmm. You know, ask them the questions mm-hmm. and let them figure it out on their own. They can do it. That's we, her we, phrase. We, Debbie say, figure it out. Figure mm-hmm. it out. You know, say so. You know, to circle back, I say I've got, and I've got a twenty. How old is Ash? Twenty six, twenty five. Mm-hmm. Just started working. She's a year into a new job. Every day she calls me with some <laughs> kind of drama, mm-hmm. and so I find myself saying, "Well, what do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, have you thought about what your options are?" Who can you talk to? Mm-hmm. You know, how can you do? Are you doing what you're supposed to do? Help them process, right? So they can figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we handicap them. Yeah. Because if we intervene every time they got a problem, it's like Michael said, you're gonna be at the school at least once a week. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So we got to learn to equip our kids to w- handle some of their own issues because mm-hmm. they can do it. They can. They're lazy. Some of them are lazy. Yeah. This generation. You know Oof. Lazy. God. Lazy, so let me, let me, um, something that we had talked about a while ago. Now, I, I'm one, a lot of people got, I'm very vocal about college. Extremely vocal where people are like, well, you just don't like college. It's not that I don't like college. I have this thing where I feel like there's some obvious things. If you want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, certain things that you have to go to college for. Now, I think we we make the suit very sexy, so to say, where sometimes the guy with paint on him mm-hmm. can be just as sexy sure. or mm-hmm. the guy that's up under your sink fixing it. So what you do, you actually work for a trade school. Mm-hmm. Career, career, career right, tech. Career I'm sorry, tech. Mm-hmm. career tech. Mm-hmm. I called a masseuse, a massage therapist, masseuse. She was like massage therapist. <laughs> I was like, my bad, uh, just my bad. So, what what are your thoughts? Because I'm one where I look at probably like a um I don't know the correct term, pre sanit- sanitation worker mm-hmm. that works on a garbage truck. Sure, sanitation work. They get paid they get very paid good. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, they 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 get good benefits because they're. Is that considered city, county dep- or city? Depending on county where, it where is. you are, yeah. yeah. Okay, could be city. So they get pretty good money. What What is your take? Because I'm one. A person might be good with their hands, and they started off changing oil on the car, and then they end up fixing radiators, and then you know they end up learning how to do certain things with a car. College might not be necessary Absolutely for him. Absolutely not. No, I I have great respect for people that work with their hands. Mm-hmm. My dad was an entrepreneur. He had nine brothers, and they built uh, a lumber company. Each brother in the company 
had a trade, mm-hmm. plumbing, HVAC, mm-hmm. uh, brick and mortar, masonry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could all do something. I grew up in a household, Terrence, where I never saw a repairman. My dad, if it was broke, my dad could fix it. So I have a lot of respect. Plus, he, t- he put two uh, kids through college. We had no loans. We live in a house that was owned. I mean, there are so many benefits. But I say that to say that I think that we as a community have done a disservice to our kids. We think that everybody needs to go to college to live well. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. There are thousands of jobs right here in the Miami Valley that go unfilled because Mm -hmm. we don't have the people with the skills to do them. So plumbers, electricians, landscapers, cosmetologists and estheticians, uh, people who work in pharmacies, you don't, those jobs don't require a college degree. Now, most of them, and Michael can speak to this better than I can, but most of them require a certification of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, a journeyman mm-hmm. card or something like that. And once you get those things in your hands, you can pretty much write your own ticket. Yeah, you but know what? we haven't, you know, it's almost yeah. as if we've told black kids, you know, stay away from that. Go to college. Go to college. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we've done them a disservice. Mm -hmm. So the place where I work, uh, we draw kids from 27 different counties Mm -hmm. um, throughout Montgomery, I mean, uh, throughout the Dayton area, the Miami Valley. And the ratio of black kids to white kids is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't see black kids taking advantage of those opportunities because somebody told them, you know, and a lot of those kids are walking out as soon as they have a job before they get their diploma. We, there are a, certain skills. Welding, a great plumbing, paying mm-hmm. right out job, the, life-changing as wages. As soon as they walk is, across the stage. Right. We can't keep welders so, and plumbers a, a friend of as ours, soon as they graduate. A friend of ours, Dr. Kevin Fleming, who's in California, and he's one of the foremost authorities of something called wealth in the new economy. Success, excuse me, success in the new economy talks about, he says, to your point, he says that until in America we put values on skill over what someone dresses like, we're going to continue to have this problem because we in America, we value someone who makes, they may, a person may make $20,000 a year, but wears a shirt and tie mm-hmm. over someone who it makes, makes $300,000 a year and wears jeans a and a t-shirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the joke that I had, and this is, this is true, but you know, the kind of tongue in cheek. So our plumber, uh, and our plumber lives two doors down mm-hmm. from us. Mm-hmm. I come home from work with my suit on, uh, toilet messed up. Mm-hmm. I call Big Ed. He comes down, jeans, T-shirt. He's at my house for a half hour. I write him a check for $180. Who's the joke on? Mm-hmm. But see, we don't, in America, we don't value that skill. Mm-hmm. He has, He's a business owner. Well respected, does a great job, employs several people, mm. and, and but he's got a skill that will keep him busy for as long as he wants to work. Because yeah. everybody you know has somewhere to live, yes, and needs. Everybody's got a bathroom, but we don't. But yeah. we don't in America. We tend not to, and it's you know people going to these great jobs, great college jobs, and great college job is I'm working at Starbucks mm. or I'm working you know in a restaurant because I got a degree. 
but it, my loans are such, and mm. I can't get a job making a good living, but I'm smart. And that is just not. And then not to mention the to debt do. that yeah. we put on kids who feel like they have to go to college. You know, you take out all these loans, and then you get a job working at Starbucks when you graduate, making I, Fifteen dollars an hour, and you got a loan payment of seven hundred. It's parents' fault. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's parents' fault. And here's what I say: You've heard me say this that these decisions are made at the dinner parties or whatever on Friday night after the football game. So you go, parents are together, congregate, and uh, you tell me your child's going to Ohio State. Mm -hmm. I can't say that they're going to community college. Sinclair, which is I a good can't, school. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> so my ego, so, oh, okay, they're going to go to Ohio State too. My kid's going to go. Knowing that that's not the best choice for, for my child. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what we do. You see, it's the Joneses who drive some of these decisions when it's, you know, the one of the things, Kennedy, our oldest, you know, she was, she's a people pleaser, firstborn people pleaser. So she was a BC student in school, mm -hmm. but she wanted to go to CTC. And my heart, oh, she's going to college. She's going to college. When I let go of that, and Debbie helped me, so I let go of that and mm -hmm. let Kennedy's dream, mm -hmm. let Kennedy fulfill her dream, she became an A student. Mm -hmm. because it's what she loved to do and wanted to do. But sometimes our ego gets in the way. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, this is my child and this is what they do. And that's fine if that's what they want to do and they're gifted at. Mm -hmm. uh, my mentor used to always, he said, we never ask kids what they're gifted at mm -hmm. or what they would do if you didn't receive any pay mm -hmm. and you just love doing it. We do say, it for free. do this, you know, do this, look at this, look at the salary. And, and the average salary is not correct because you look at the scale because who's average? See, if, if I'm terrible as an accountant, I'm not going to make that average salary and I'm not going to make it the top of scale. Mm. I'm going to make a terrible That's salary true. for it's we're whatever it is, if we're really good at it. We're going to make good money because mm -hmm. we love doing it. We're passionate about it. We're going to figure out ways to, to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, and I look at, you know, my father-in-law, he loves, he loves that. Mm -hmm. So he's tremendous at it because he's doing what he loves to do. It Passion keeps him, it. you know, you're talking about 74 years old and he's working and, and looking at, because it's what he's gifted at and loves to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to having to do something and, you broke down. I don't want to go to work today. I hate this job, but he loves it, so it keeps him vibrant. Right. I one one of the biggest things that I see uh, people doing is they'll go to college, and then they'll come out lost, or or go for a year and then they didn't quit. Or or the, the, there's a lot of back there's right. a lot of people that go to school. They got a degree in psychology. Marketing. Yeah, or psychology. They get a job and they find out that they hate it. Another thing that Liberal I push people. Arts. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what you do with it <laughs> so you know I, I tell people like look I told some high schoolers when I used to teach um, at a church I was like and I had some flack but I'm like y'all take a year off I'm like take that year off but take it off to go intern put your hands on a couple of things see what you like see what you don't like because I say the worst thing you're going to do is go gather up all this debt and then you graduate there's so many people if you ask a group of parents or a group of grown people in the room how many of y'all working in the job that you went to school for? No. A lot of them probably be like, not me. 
I'm just getting Starbucks money because this is, I got to do what I got to do. Our son Trey, uh, he encountered a lot of people. You know, he went education major. He encountered a lot of people who discovered after going through all that, they didn't want to teach. I know a handful. <laughs> oh, we all. And then not here's, teachers. Here's, here's the other residual effect of that. They get a teaching job and then harm kids. That's right. Because they didn't want to teach or aren't very good at it. Mm-hmm. And going to stick it out so they can get their loans forgiven mm-hmm. and then they out. Yeah, so now you That's not only true. have you not fulfilled what that. you need to be, what you're gifted at and what you need to be doing. Making other folks miserable. You're hurting yeah. others. Mm. Because you're not very good at an education, you know, not to wax. You have to be passionate. Well, not to wax too philosophical, but data shows if you have two consecutive years of bad teachers, Mm -hmm. that the kid never recovers. That's right. They never recover and get where they need to be. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be successful, but they never achieve what they could have if they had great teachers those two years. So if you have back-to-back bad teachers, you never recover from that. Yeah. Man. I want to go back to Debbie, and you, and we'll, we can close here. But you talked about how when you um, just was sucking up, sucking up, sucking up, it was making you unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, mm-hmm. and so I wanted you to share um, just your your story about sure. um, being a survivor. So um, I'm a two time two survivor. Two time survivor. The first time. Um, I was pregnant with my second daughter, I mean, with my second child, when I discovered a lump. And at the time, I thought it was a um, a blocked milk duct, mm-hmm. but only to discover just a few weeks later that it was indeed cancer. But to your point, Maya, um, you know, I can't prove it, mm-hmm. but I do think that those years that I lived in a toxic environment with my former husband played a role in that mm-hmm. um, research you know, suggests that if we uh, repress, if we're unhappy, if we don't find a way to release that, it's going to come out in some way. Mm -hmm. And my own personal belief is that that unhappiness and that resentment that was building up in my relationship um, created a cancer in me. Mm -hmm. So I guess to make a long story short, um, I uh, found it early. And I was able to have um, a minor surgery that did include chemotherapy and radiation, but it took its toll on my first marriage. Mm. And to this day, I think that that was part of the reason why my first marriage ended is Mm. because my husband could not get his arms around the fact that I was a breast cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, cancer free for almost 25 years to the day. Mm. And then about three years ago, three years in December, I discovered... um, a second abnormality through a um, mammogram Mm -hmm. and had to have more extensive radical surgery. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that I've had a a double mastectomy with reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm about three years out now as a survivor. And this time um, I've had a different kind of a support system, um, acceptance of where you know I am at this point and just glad to be alive so I think my message among other things is that women should not ignore when there are changes in their breasts it's not something that you should be embarrassed about it's not something that you should ignore if Mm -hmm. you feel something or see something that's not normal for you then you need to have it checked Mm -hmm. how is that supporting um learning that your wife had a um 
second, like you said, a second abnormality. So it went through phases, and I, I got an A on the first phase and got an F on the second, and hopefully I'm doing much better with, with this last phase. So the first phase, we discovered that uh, Debbie had a recurrence in December, so we discussed it, and um, she decided not to tell the kids. We went through Christmas. Mm. And this was a few weeks before Christmas. We went through Christmas, and Debbie wanted them to have a regular Christmas and not have to worry. We've got kids who are worriers, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to their mama. Mm-hmm. So Debbie didn't want to them to, to go through that, so she let them know after Christmas. So that was fine. I struggled with the surgery and the recovery, and I was not uh present like I should have been and I'm not talking about physically I'm just talking about the being the support mm-hmm. that I needed to be but this goes into that uh and and I I uh I believe I hurt Debbie in that area um but this is where that you know our relationship over these years uh, and and being strong she shared that with me and how hurt she was that I was not as supportive as I could have been. So I I worked really hard after that to uh, be the husband and the support and the friend that I needed to be. And uh, I think that I've done a better job. But that has been, uh, you know, that's one of those things that um, you think you may act a certain way or you and and you don't know till you go through it and and you really have to be what that person who's going through the situation needs mm-hmm. not what you think uh not but what they need and and that is just a, a, another space so that was important Debbie what do you what what do you want to say about no, that I, I was just going to add too that a lot of times when people think about things that come against marriages you think um another person mm-hmm. you know some kind of a, a extramarital infidelity. infidelity or something but I think what Michael and I discovered is that um a major illness or a major surgery amongst a couple can also be a very trying time you mm-hmm. know it can it can um uh, hits you in places in a relationship where you can be totally unprepared. You just don't see it coming. And in his defense, I mean, I think that we did. We had to have what I call a come-to-Jesus meeting about mm-hmm. what I need for you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that he uh, was in a situation where he felt like he needed to be strong, you know, that he couldn't um, let down his guard, that he was always in protector mode. And control. And control mode. And if and we don't... Wasn't. Think mm-hmm. about this; it'll it'll happen. But there finally came a day where I had to say to him, that "This is not working for me." Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? To the point where if I'm gonna have to deal with this, like I feel like I'm dealing with this by myself, then why are you here? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Why Why are you here if you're not gonna help me mm-hmm. with this? And then you get past the initial stages, and it becomes a thing. My body has changed, mm-hmm. you know, and. Will he accept me? Right. Will he love me the same? Right. So there are a lot of things that went into that diagnosis and the years mm-hmm. after that where people don't even, you don't think and about it. And it happens so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go from a regular life to a diagnosis and then your whole world changes, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm a fixer. 
Mm-hmm. And this was something I couldn't fix. Mm-hmm. This was but something. But he wouldn't admit that. You know, that was also something that he couldn't let go. You know, he is a fixer and he couldn't fix it. And to be okay for me and him both to sit in that, it was it wasn't it took a while. Mm-hmm. It took a while for him mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think it strengthened uh, Gus uh the experience of her expressing what she needed from me and that that's something that's another piece mm-hmm. of the foundation of our marriage that has strengthened our marriage. And you touched on that cuz my my best friend died of breast cancer. She had three bouts with breast cancer and at, at that third one it just metastasized. Mm-hmm. Um but just I remember her talking about she had a first she had a lumpectomy, then she had a double mastectomy once it came back mm-hmm. and just feeling like not like a woman. Sure. You know, like how am I gonna be received and, you know, I don't have that confidence and, you know, how is he gonna judge me? And I I mean that's a real thing because it's kinda a part of your womanhood you know what I mean your identity is in your body and so I think that's really important that people have to be honest about too Mm -hmm. you know and just even for men you know you wonder like okay do you really see me how does this change our relationship our sexual relationship everything Mm -hmm. you know it's all relevant that's that's all there's something we kid about but we're serious about it Mm -hmm. is uh we the line from the movie roots Mm-hmm. When Rooster came back from England mm-hmm. and his wife, you know, they're, they're laying in bed and his wife says, I'm old, wrinkled up and ugly. And he says, I seize you with my heart. I mm-hmm. don't seize you with, with my, my eyes. eyes. Yeah. And I think that is goes back to what I mentioned about my dad. Having someone you can sit on the porch with. Mm-hmm. That I was, that mature, was exactly what I was mature love is no matter weight gain, something happened physically your love is bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And that is mature love. That's what real love is about because we're going to change. Things are going to happen, you know, and mature love is, in spite of all that, I love this this woman. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, or I love this man or I love this person. That is what is 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 important. And that's what we strive for. I mean, we all have clay feet, but I think that's the, the, the striving. Mm-hmm. No, that I, when she, when you was both talking, I was sitting here thinking about that. How you said learning how to be able to sit on the porch because mm-hmm. it's kind of like after you after the body changes and the physical everything changes, it ain't even about that no more. It's kind of yeah. like yeah. Right. I see you, you my friend, and we friends, we best friends. So it's that that was a good point. We have so much more <laughs> right but we could talk about i think this is going down as our longest one yeah and i don't want to stop it but thank you so much because yeah. we don't want to keep you out here all night yeah <laughs> but we got to do this again yeah. and i'm, I'm yeah. sure the I, listeners I are going it and hopefully we didn't uh bore you too much mm, not at all we have so much more that we could talk about <laughs> and we want to do this again and i'm sure the listeners are going to be like having questions so thank y'all so much Michael and Debbie Carter. We are, this is the Dorsey Dan podcast. I am DJ Doris E. And I am Maya Dorsey. Thank you all so much for sitting down, listening to this. Make sure you jump in those uh, comments and uh, leave your questions, feedback, whatever you got. We out. Until next time.